Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I am excited to introduce my special guest to you. Her name is Stephanie Gray. Stephanie, how are you doing today, ma'am? I'm well. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your day, uh, all the way from Vancouver, Canada. So I think this might you might be the first Canadian on. I'm not sure, but uh, oh, well, uh, that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day to do this. Uh, I'm excited to have you on to talk about um, the subject of pro-life. And um, if you if you don't mind giving us a brief introduction of yourself, I thought that might be helpful for the audience who may or may not be familiar with who you are. Sure. So I was raised in a really, you could say, actively pro-life family. Both my parents were super involved in the pro-life movement, going to conferences, marches, uh, writing letters to the editor. My mom volunteered at a pregnancy care center. So at a very young age, I was exposed to the topic of abortion and the fact that there was a need for people to raise their voices, which was what my parents were doing. So that laid a foundation, you could say, of a deep conviction of speaking out on the pro-life issue. And then when I was 18 in my first year of college, an American speaker, you may or may not be familiar with, Scott Klusendorf, uh, he traveled to Canada and spoke at a conference that I attended for pro-life college students. And at that conference, he said, there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. Mm. Mm. And when I heard those words, I really felt the Holy Spirit convict my heart um, and essentially ask me, will you work full time to save babies? And so um, long story short, you know, doors closed in the direction of what my initial pursuits that I thought would be and opened in the direction of public speaking and working full time in the pro-life movement. And so when I graduated a few years later, I, you could say, launched into my public speaking career on a full time basis. And I've been doing that for the last 20 years. Yeah, very neat. So uh, you've been uh, pro-life from a young age. Have you also been Christian from a young age? And kind of what Absolutely. is your... Absolutely. You, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, raised in a good Christian home uh, and just believing the importance of uh, being Christ's hands and feet and voice to the world, realizing that uh, we have a responsibility to protect the creation that he said was not merely good, but was very good, that bears his image. And although I believe an argument can be made for rejecting abortion that isn't grounded necessarily in an overt religious view, I believe an argument can be made from a human rights perspective. Certainly, uh, I'm a believer who knows that we're all image bearers and ought to respect and protect God's creation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So what is um, Love Unleashes Life and kind of how did it come about? Yes. So that is my public speaking ministry that I began five years ago. When I first launched into full-time pro-life work, I co-founded a pro-life organization in Canada called the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. And it was through that ministry that I did do public speaking, but I created um, an entity that was much larger than just public speaking, a lot of exhibits and direct outreach at high schools and colleges. And so I grew that ministry for, you know, almost 15 years. And then discerned that my uh, greatest gifting that the Lord had given me was my ability to equip and train others to be winsome and articulate defenders of the pro-life perspective, and that I should really focus in on that niche of public speaking and writing uh, rather than that larger scale activity that I was doing. And so I created the ministry Love Unleashes Life to be the platform through which I would expand the formation that I had started. 
And I've been doing that the last few years and lots of doors have opened there too. Very cool. So uh, uh, just for the audience, I will leave a link in the description below to Love Unleashes Life so you can uh, check out everything that, um, that Stephanie has to offer over there and uh, get uh, all that uh, good material. Um, so let, let's kind of dive into the pro-life movement and, and things of that nature. Uh, first of all, what what even is the pro-life movement and uh, wh- how would you kind of define it in a nutshell? Mm, good question. I would say the pro-life movement is about upholding the sanctity of human life where it is particularly under attack. Uh, I would say at the beginning and end of life. So when it comes to the preborn child, when it comes to the aged, the disabled, uh, we see attack. Uh, in particular with those groups when it comes to abortion and increasingly assisted suicide and euthanasia. So the pro-life movement is a response to these human rights violations to rally people together to be voices for the most vulnerable who often cannot defend themselves. Yeah. So you keep speaking of human rights and human dignity and value. Where does that value come from? Um, in like an objective sense, why is it objectively uh, good to protect these um, uh, individuals and humans as you're, as you're t- you're speaking, and why is it objectively wrong to uh, end their lives or or end your own life? Mm. Uh, I suppose. So where does that human rights come in? Because a second ago we were talking, you you were making a distinction between yes, you can make the argument from a religious standpoint that God has uh, endowed all human beings. Um, in, uh, created all human beings in his mm-hmm. image, but also that human rights side of it. Where does that come from? Good question. I mean, I think you could say uh, for people who aren't religious that there is you can we can know through intuition that there are certain things that are instinctive to us that when we look at Mother Teresa in contrast to Hitler, we instinctively know whether we're yeah. religious or not that Mother Teresa did good. And Hitler did evil. Uh, There is this sense that human beings ought to be treated in a reverent way, not a violent, dishonoring way. That's why even if someone is not religious, even if they're in favor of abortion, if they see a headline that says, parents starve, kill, or maim toddler. There's universal outrage at that because we instinctively know that we ought to treat our fellow humans with United United Nations refers to it as a spirit of brotherhood. Now, having said that, if you dig a little deeper and someone says, yeah, but why? Why why is it instinctive? Why it is intuitive? You know, why was Hitler wrong? And why was Mother Teresa right? Mm -hmm. Um, I would say, ultimately, those types of questions do bring us to God. They, They bring us to a place where we realize I'm creature, not creator, that there is a higher power, that there is an intelligent being that created everything and that that being is all-knowing and all-loving and that within his nature of being all-loving in particular is this sense that the creation he made which images him ought to be reverenced because of who he is, his greatness, his power, and his love. And so because we image God, who is a communion of persons, who is all about relationship, the, a Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that that we humans are made for relationship. We're made for connection. We're not made for isolation. That's why solitary confinement is a torture technique. Um, that is why children, you know, um, under Ceausescu's regime in Romania, who 
who were left alone in their cribs uh, face all kinds of now is in their adult years, all kinds of uh, difficulties in life because it is a trauma to be isolated and separated. So because humans reflect God and image God um, and are made for relationship and connection to destroy life made in God's image, to destroy connection and and fragment uh, instead to, to create fragments of, of human relationship and, and separate people and isolate people, that that would be destructive to the human spirit and therefore ought to be rejected. Yeah. So somebody might even uh, agree with you um, that life should not be uh, terminated in, in many cases, um, but they <clears throat> they may try to go the route of saying that uh, a fetus or an embryo it, it's it's not a human life. It's not mm. it's not it's not alive. So right. Um, and this brings up the the uh, often asked question of when does when does life begin at conception mm. later, um, and how do you even go about assessing that in an objective way? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what's uh, important about that question is it helps us see, we look to, I would say, ultimately, we can look to religion for how we ought to treat human beings. But we look to science to determine where we have human beings. So the question of when life begins is a scientific one. And if you look at embryology textbooks, if you look at medical textbooks, we actually see a consistent statement across the board, which reveals that in beings which reproduce sexually, life begins at sperm egg fusion or fertilization. Of course, in in pro-life lingo, we often use the term conception, but I would say fertilization is the most scientific term. And and there is consensus in the scientific textbooks about that. I would also say when we're talking about other beings which reproduce sexually but aren't human, uh, there is no debate about when life begins because there's consensus that with dogs or cats, that because these beings reproduce sexually, their offspring begin their lives also at sperm egg fusion. Uh, I would say, you know, at the, you know, on another topic, which of course is a, is an issue for a whole other day, but to make the point, if you're dealing with a situation not where someone wants to end life in the case of abortion, but where they want to create life in the case of being faced with infertility and uh, maybe are considering in vitro fertilization. Now, setting aside the ethics of in vitro fertilization, which I, I, I have a whole series on my blog as to why I believe it's morally objectionable, but setting aside the ethics of that, if you were to ask a scientist who's a specialist in in vitro fertilization, when does life begin? You never hear the IVF specialist say, you know, I just don't know. That's a good question. You know, the IVF specialist will consistently tell you the one moment they're trying to replicate in the lab is the moment of sperm egg fusion, the moment of fertilization. They aren't happy with just a sperm sample. They aren't happy with just eggs by themselves harvested from a college student for maybe $20,000. What they're looking for is the moment of fertilization. So the people in the business of making life will tell you life begins at fertilization. So therefore, for those who are in the business of ending life, claiming to not know when life begins would be intellectually dishonest because on other issues we know it begins at fertilization. Okay. So as far as the scientific consensus is concerned, there's there's no question that life begins at conception. Correct. Biological life. And I think what often happens in the abortion debate is abortion supporters will distinguish um, science um, from philosophy, and but but they end up blending the two. So what they will do is say, well, even if the embryo or fetus of human parents is biologically human because the parents are, right. uh, 
even if that embryo began her life at fertilization because they're part of a species that reproduces sexually, um, even if that embryo is alive because the embryo is growing, they might say the embryo isn't a person and therefore abortion is justified. But if they bring up the notion of personhood, that the concept of person is not a scientific term. Right. It's not a biological category. It's not an objective thing. It's actually a philosophical or a legal term, which has had a changing definition throughout history. So more often than not, I find abortion supporters will attempt to justify abortion on the basis that embryos and fetuses aren't persons, which isn't a scientific question. Right. That's a legal philosophical one. Yeah, yeah, that's a good distinction to make. Um, I would say, and I, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear your answer to that question, what, what do you do when someone says, okay, um, it's alive, but it's it's not a, a person as far as um, either philosophically or legally. Um, but just I just want to add that just prima facie, that just kind of sounds absurd to me at least, that you could be a human and not a person, but how do you answer that? Yeah, well, definitely, I would agree with that. I, the, the additional point I would make is I would actually ask the question. I would take on a Socratic role and say to the abortion supporter, well, um, how do you define a person? What is a person to you? And then they might say somewhat wisely, well, what distinguishes us from animals? Isn't it that we're capable of rational thought, we're conscious, we're self-aware? Then they will take that criteria and rightly point out that the one-celled embryo at that moment isn't conscious, rational, or self-aware, and therefore argue the embryo isn't a person. But what I would do once I get that definition is I would say, okay, let's work with that. Let's talk about being rational, conscious, and self-aware, but then ask ourselves, why isn't the embryo those things or capable of those things in the current moment? Right. Why can't the embryo think, reason, and, and be self-aware? And the answer is, well, the embryo lacks the organ necessary for that, which is the brain. So then we could ask another question, well, why does a one-celled human embryo lack a brain? And the answer is, well, the embryo hasn't developed it yet. So then we can ask again, why has the embryo not developed the brain? And the answer is the embryo hasn't had time. And time is reflected in our age. So I would make the point that, yes, it's true, the one-celled embryo in that moment is not rational, conscious, or self-aware. But the reason for why the embryo isn't able to do those things is because of the embryo's age. So then I would ask the question, should personhood be grounded in how old we are, or should personhood be grounded in what we are, namely as members of the human family? And I would say the United Nations has answered that question for us. Uh, the United Nations in its Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, in the preamble refers to all members of the human family. And in Article 6 says everyone has a right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Well, if if we're talking about everyone and in the preamble we are referencing all members of the human family, then everyone is all members of the human family. So their simple point is, if you're a member of the human family, you ought to be considered a person. So therefore, even though the embryo at fertilization of human parents currently is not rational, conscious, or self-aware, by virtue of being a member of the human family, the embryo ought to be considered a person. But the additional point I would make is that by virtue of being human, the embryo actually has the inherent capacity for thinking, for being rational, right. for being self-aware. It is just that currently the embryo is incapable of acting on that ability, but mm. the very nature of the embryo is it holds that ability. And so a simple analogy I'll make for people is, you know, we often think of dogs being different from cats in many ways, but an obvious one is a dog barks and a cat doesn't. But it's possible to have a dog 
that cannot bark. Uh, you may have a dog that had developmental issues in utero and never developed the capacity to bark, or you could have a dog whose owner had their vocal cords clipped because they lived in a condo and they weren't allowed loud animals. Um, if you have a dog that is currently incapable of barking, it doesn't mean the dog is no longer a dog. Right. The dog has the inherent capacity to bark, but lacks the current ability to act on it mm. while still maintaining its nature of a dog. Yeah. And so in the same way, the human embryo has the inherent capacity to think, reason, and be self-aware, therefore is a person, the embryo just lacks the current ability to act on that capacity. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct, and it actually, um, just in philosophical terms, it reminds me of um, Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas who uh, talk about actuality and potentiality, and uh, a human embryo or fetus is of its na very nature a human being, and mm -hmm. that doesn't mean all of its potentials have been actualized yet, one of those potentials right. being, the, like you were saying, the capacity for rational and, and, and reasonable thought. Um, mm. And I just think that anytime you try to draw this distinction between human being and personhood, you're going to fall into something that you probably don't want to fall into. Um, what you said is absolutely correct. And then I was also thinking along the lines of I know adults who don't have the capacity for mm -hmm. uh, rational or, or reasonable thought. And I know that nobody would ever assert that we sh should be allowed uh, – that their guardians should be allowed mm -hmm. to terminate their lives at a, at a right. whim. Um, yeah, exactly. When you begin to create a definition like you have to currently function in a certain way, then yes, abortion supporters are excluding far more than preborn children. They're excluding newborn infants who cannot have a you know conversation with us. If you were to say to a newborn, may I kill you? Well, the infant isn't going to say no, of course not. But their lack of comprehension and their lack of response does not give us license to end their lives. Yeah. And so whether it's an infant, whether it's a person with a disability, whether it's someone under anesthetic getting their wisdom teeth removed or someone sleeping, these are cases of born individuals who may not a be able to currently act the way you and I are right now. It doesn't mean they're not persons. And so yeah. the same is true for the preborn. Yeah. So the science is just so clear and the reasoning is so clear to me. I mean, it just it just seems so obvious to me, to be honest, and I don't mean to sound condescending to anybody listening, but it, it makes me wonder, um, you know, these excuses, like trying to draw a distinction between human being and personhood, like like I said, that just seems so absurd to me and things like that. Why, why is it that people try to uh, hang on to this obviously immoral thing? Or what, what do you see there? Yeah, that's a, a good point. And I would say that's why I think ultimately um, the issue is less an intellectual one and more of an emotional one for many people. Because when you break down the arguments and look at the science and look at philosophy and look at human rights, a really sound case can be made for recognizing human embryos and fetuses as persons with the inalienable right to life. So when that is rejected, it is often not because we present bad arguments, but more often than not because the person we're arguing with has a bad past, mm. that perhaps they have participated in an abortion by driving a friend to a clinic. Maybe they themselves have had one. Maybe their mothers have, their sisters or their girlfriend. Maybe they were silent when they should have spoken up. And there's, you know, one of two things really we can do 
when we have that type of bad past, we can acknowledge it, repent and lay it at the foot of the cross and experience God's mercy, or we can go into denial and justification. And so I would say, unfortunately, many in our culture, if we feel that we're up against a brick wall and, and we can't seem to get through to someone logically, to me, that would be an indicator that they have not acknowledged, repented, and experienced healing, but instead they're in denial and in rationalization or justification mode, and they don't want to accept the logic because of the painful reality that logic will mean in their own life. And so instead, then they hold on to this idea that abortion is acceptable because they're justifying uh, participation to some degree uh, in that issue in some way in their lives. And and that is is a harder um, hurdle to get across. It's, it's not impossible. And that's part of my ministry is equipped to equip people not just to make the intellectual case, but really to reach the hearts of people in crisis and, um, or hearts of people in in denial, and and to share stories of people who have been in denial and who have tried to justify past abortions, but have experienced God's mercy, and therefore wanted that sin of their past to be transformed and redeemed and and turned into a mighty tool that they then use to reach other people and use their testimony to spare other children their child's death or other women the hurt that they've gone through. But until they get to that place of ownership of what they've done, repentance and healing, then often we're up against denial and justification. So um, well, I was going to ask you how you thought we should go about um, engaging the culture with the pro-life message, but I think you did a good job of answering uh, that right there. So what are some of the biggest things as far as um, in the culture or in politics or things like that that need to be accomplished so that we could see abortion come to an end? Mm. Well, I think we definitely need to not only seize opportunities to have more debate, but we need to create opportunities. And then we need to make sure the people that are creating opportunities to engage in, in, in rigorous public debate are well-trained to be wise and knowledgeable, but also compassionate and tender, realizing that we're often speaking to a broken culture. Because we've had you know, various politicians and other public figures that perhaps have raise their voices, but they've not been great ambassadors to the pro-life perspective. They, they're not very articulate or they don't provide the most compelling case. So I think we need to do a lot more formation uh, on people, um, for people of influence to be able to use their positions of influence better to, to raise awareness about the issue. Certainly, uh, not only do we need more education, but we need to try to make change politically. I'm a big believer in the idea that we need to make abortion unthinkable. So that regardless of what the law is, if we do a good job educating people, it ideally won't enter into the hearts and minds of someone in crisis to consider ending the life of their child. Having said that, the law should reflect what is true and just and good. And so that is why, while I believe it should be unthinkable, I obviously believe, since it's homicide, that it ought to be illegal. And so therefore, efforts to to change the law to protect pre-born children, even if that means going incrementally, um, I think we need to make important steps in the direction of protecting children because it often... Um, 
the the reality we have today of where children are protected often came from a bunch of little steps to uh, deny children uh, their right to life. And then certainly I would say the other arm of the movement that's important besides the educational and the political is the pastoral and really journeying with women through their pregnancy and beyond. So they feel that they have support to carry that child to term, whether they parent in the end afterwards, after birth, or whether they opt for adoption. So I think also encouraging uh, people in our churches to be more open to rescuing orphans, to uh, a heart that is open and generous to foster care and adoption. I, I Just about a year ago, I came across a great ministry called Love Life Charlotte, where uh, this pro-life organization is, is working in Charlotte with um, churches of various denominations to really create a whole spirit of orphan care where they are aiming to foster all the children in their community. Uh, I met a pastor in Dallas who's aiming to do the same thing through his church. So I think we also need to have that. So it's really a holistic approach. Yeah, I really like that last part, though. Uh, I think it was in the book of James that says true religion is this, that you care for orphans. And, for and widows, widows in their yeah. affliction. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yes. And and I've, I think that, that that last point is very good because um, if we can provide a place for women who would otherwise might consider an abortion, if we can show them that we're here for them, um, and mm-hmm. that um, that they actually that they have a real choice. You know, I really hate the language of choice, and I, and I get the. Um, the reason why the pro-choice movement would take on the word choice because of how much, mm. at least here in the United States, how much people love freedom and choice. So it right. seems obvious that they would choose that word, even though, even though, at least as far as I can tell, women don't have an abortion because they feel like they have a multitude of choices. They feel like they have no other choice. Mm-hmm. And so if we could, as the church, really show them that they do have a, a viable uh, other choice, then um, that seems like a very powerful way. But that requires people getting out of the pews and actually doing stuff so yes um, yes so at least i know you're in canada but um in here in the united states on the topic of abortion the 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 subject of uh, roe v wade always gets brought up and i Mm -hmm. think there's a lot of confusion around that and so i was going to see if you could kind of um uh, shine some light on that subject what what even is roe v wade um Mm -hmm. What was the effect of it? How does it get overturned? Yeah. And what would the effect of its overturning be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a few things. Um, certainly a, a resource to point your viewers and listeners to is my friend Lila Rose over at the group Live Action has recently produced a great summary video where she's speaking through the history of Roe versus Wade and and telling kind of the facts of, of that particular case. But that was kind of the landmark Supreme Court case in the United States where in 1973 abortion uh, was made legal in America and the Roe in Roe versus Wade, that was the kind of the term or name used for Norma McCorvey. Uh, And Norma McCorvey was a woman who was considering abortion, but the actual pregnancy that she had that was being used to justify abortion in the end, she didn't even uh, have an abortion of that particular child. But uh, and and another interesting fact is Norma McCorvey eventually became uh, pro-life and um, rejected Uh, the abortion rights movement, and that's often overlooked, and and the average person isn't aware of that. But that kind of landmark case made it legal in America, but it was interestingly followed up by another significant case called Doe versus Bolton, where uh, 
they said that abortion could occur later in pregnancy when the health of the mother was in danger. But the term health was defined so broadly as to include, you could essentially say all kinds of health, her emotional health, her psychological right. health, her, her economic health. And um, so between those two cases, it really led to widespread access to abortion in America through all nine months of pregnancy. And I realize that uh, some of your states have some state laws that um, would uh, have like a, some states have a 24 hour waiting period or an informed consent law where you have to be informed of certain facts of prenatal development before you can proceed with an abortion. but at the same time, very late abortions do happen in America. Um, and I even know, although they also happen very late in Canada, that our Canadian government on some occasions have used our, our tax dollars to pay for some uh, Canadian women to be brought to the United States where late-term abortions uh, have been done. So mm. um, it, it led to this widespread access to abortion where you're roughly at, I think it's approximately a million preborn children are brutally killed every year in America. So there is a a need to create pro-life law to overturn that. And I know there's a lot of talk about overturning Roe v. Wade. The specifics of what that looks like and how that's done is not something I engage in when when I'm in the States, which is often, my focus is really more educational than gotcha. uh, than political. But that would kind of be a, a basic summary. But I do sure. recommend the live action video by yeah. Lila on Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Uh, how does, this is a, a question that came to mind. How does the conversation differ um, in hmm. Canada than it does here in the United States. You know what? I would say it doesn't really differ. I would say that I find the arguments are just the same that I hear from abortion supporters. A, a difference, not so much in how the debate occurs, but in the nature of our two countries is that I would say Americans have a greater respect for freedom of expression and Mm. First Amendment rights, as you call it, than uh, unfortunately Canadians do. And we just don't have the same respect for declaring and respecting the expression of unpopular opinion. And so we face more censorship in Canada and often as pro-lifers, we first have to fight for our right to freedom of expression before we can even fight for Mm -hmm. the baby's right to live. So that's one difference. The other uh, difference I would say just in the nature of our two countries is we have uh, a healthcare system where our government funds uh, medical procedures and unfortunately that includes abortion. So abortion is paid for by the government. If I want an abortion tomorrow, I could just, you know, call up the hospital or clinic where it's done and, and that would be funded. I would add that that according to me, is a violation of even the nature of the funding of our healthcare because healthcare is only supposed to be funded by the government if it's medically necessary. And so I think wow. the argument could be made that abortion is not a medically necessary procedure, even if it's done by medical professionals. So according to that definition of what we fund in our country, we shouldn't be funding it because it's not necessary. But tragically, yeah. we are. So that would, I, I would say, be a, another difference in the debate. Yeah. And it, it could only be classified as healthcare in the first place by some absurd definition of healthcare. But anyway, well, exactly because it's not care, and yeah. it doesn't lead to health. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. I'm pretty sure the first rule was do no harm. But um, exactly, exactly. What uh, yeah. you've done a lot of debates. Um, what are some hard pro-choice uh, arguments or responses, and uh, how do you respond to them? Mm. So I would say most of the arguments I hear from abortion supporters do not come across to me as being very difficult or challenging. They often are appeal appeals to uh, the crisis of the pregnancy the woman finds herself in, uh, whether justifying abortion on the grounds of 
poverty or lack of support or pregnancy from rape. And in each of those cases, I will often make the point that the circumstances of the pregnancy are difficult and we can agree on that. The question of whether the act of abortion is an ethical solution to what we agree are difficult problems is not a morally complex issue. It's as simple as asking the question of when does life begin, which we already tackled. And the question we have to ask is, if the preborn child is human, then how do the difficult circumstances of the mother justify homicide on her offspring? We could imagine born children whose mothers are poor, whose mothers lack support, or whose mothers conceived those children as a result of rape. And we would never end the life of a two-year-old because the two-year-old is a reminder of the father's crime. Or we wouldn't end the life of a two-year-old because the mother lacks support or is poor. And so I, I simply respond that nor should we end the life of the preborn child. I will say so, although definitely the, the type of stuff I hear like that is, is not difficult for me. The, one of the times that does stand out in memory as a challenging situation was when I debated an abortion supporter, a professor of philosophy, who actually kind of conceded for the sake of discussion that the embryo and fetus of human parents were human persons, that the embryo and fetus had a right to life. And so he he kind of agreed to those pro-life premises. But then he said, I'm going to argue abortion is justified on the basis that a living human person doesn't have a right to use another living human person's body without their consent. And then he proceeded to come up with <laughs> with this little thought experiment where he said, you know, I want you to imagine you have a born child who's dying of kidney disease. And for whatever reason, you're the only person as the parent with the right body type to be able to donate a kidney to save your child's life. He said, is your child a living human person with a right to life? Yes. Would it kill you to donate one of your kidneys? No. Would it save your child if you did that? Yes. Uh, would it be nice of you to do it? Yes, he said. But then he asked, should the law force you as a parent to donate one of your kidneys to your child? And then he answered his question by saying, no, no, the law should not. And so his concluding point was, just as the law shouldn't force a parent to give their kidney to their born child, the law should not force a parent to give their uterus to their pre-born child. Yes, in the same way that the law shouldn't stipulate that I have to jump into a burning car to save right, somebody. to save no. someone, or you right. have to donate your blood, or whatever right. the case may Isn't, be. There's an obvious difference, but go ahead if you want to continue. Yeah, well, and I remember <laughs> in the moment thinking, I know what he's saying isn't right, but I don't know how to rebut it. Yeah. And so I started praying. I was like, come Holy Spirit, like, Lord Jesus, what do I say? And I actually sensed God speak to me, not audibly, but he, he said a very distinct statement. And he said to me, Stephanie, I made the uterus for a different purpose. And then I started to think that through, and then I came up with my response, and I and I said, you know, Professor Snedden makes a compelling argument until we ask ourselves a question. And the question we have to ask is, what is the nature and purpose of the kidney versus the nature and purpose of the uterus? Because the answer to that tells us why the parent should not be legally obligated to donate a kidney, but should be legally obligated to, you know, figuratively speaking, donate their uterus. I said, the kidney exists in my body for my body. And the kidney exists in your body for your body. But I said, my uterus is different from my kidneys and my other body parts. My uterus is different in that it exists in my body. But by its very nature, every single month, it is getting ready for someone else's body. It's an organ that it exists in me, but more for my offspring than for me. 
And therefore, my offspring can claim a right to my uterus in a way my offspring cannot claim a right to my kidney, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, that seemed to satisfy the audience. And I actually, it was reported back to me later that um, he had said to his class a couple days later that he was up all night trying to think of a response to that. So I like to say that's the power of prayer and the power of questions. Yeah. But that, that was a moment to answer your question where I felt like, oh, gosh, I don't know what to say. That's a tough, tough argument. But, of course, a response is still there even if it's tough. Right. That's a that's a perfect response. Um, we are coming to the end of the interview here. But of course, if you want to stick around for the bonus segment, five more minutes with Stephanie Gray, you can follow the Patreon link in the description below and uh, become a patron supporter where you'll get access to all of uh, the bonus segments that we do here at the podcast. And of course, I want to give a, a special thank you to our patron supporters. And again, if you want to become a patron supporter, you can follow the Patreon link in the description below and uh, show your support for Help Me Believe where we um, where I strive to um, spread and defend the truth of Christianity as well as uh, topics uh, like this one, the pro-life uh, movement. Uh, one last question for you, Stephanie, before we get to the bonus segment. And again, thanks so much for uh, coming on and doing this. Uh, what would you say to women who have had an abortion or are mm. considering one? Mm. Well, I think there are two different types of statements that that we need to have there, certainly for women who have had abortions, to let them know that they are not alone, that there are other women who have already made that choice. And I have several friends who have an abortion in their past who deeply regret it. And so for someone who is feeling guilt to not despair, but to know that God is a loving and a merciful God. And if we look to Peter, for example, who betrayed Christ in his moment of great need, abandoned by his friend and follower, um, what did Peter do? He came back to Christ. He repented. And then what did God do? He transformed him and said, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. So he not only forgave Peter, but placed him in a position of great leadership. And so I think for any woman who's had an abortion, for her to know that God is ready and waiting through Jesus Christ to forgive and then to heal and transform and to use one's terrible past as a mighty instrument to reach people into the future, to um, use the story of one's regret as a witness so that others don't make that same choice and don't live with that same regret. And for someone who's considering abortion to to know that there are people that want to help you, that there are people that have set up ministries to walk alongside you. I know of a a young woman I met in college who, when she was 16, was pregnant, had no support, and she called up a home for pregnant women. And she carried through with the pregnancy and parents now her child and is so happy to have her son. And it was through the help of a, a home for pregnant women. Um, as I mentioned, there's Love Life Charlotte. Uh, there's a group of nuns in New York who open up their convent to women in crisis called the Sisters of Life and allow those women who are pregnant to live with them. Uh, and so there's a lot of support. So to not give up, um, to know that there are people that will love you and your child. And certainly if, if people want specifics of wherever they're based, where they can get a, a help center, you know, if they go to my website and contact us, we can uh, locate someone near them who could be of help. So that's loveunleasheslife.com. 
And again, I'll have the uh, link to Love Un Unleashes Life, uh, as well as all things Stephanie Gray, linked in the description below. Um, thanks so much to our audience for joining us. Um, again, the, the links will be in the description. And uh, again, if you want to join us in the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Stephanie Gray, be sure to follow the Patreon link in the description and become a patron supporter of Help Me Believe. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you.